WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Uh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. See? Yep. And NPR. It's time now to practice some very useful phrases. I'll say them first, you repeat, and we'll learn together. Let's begin. This is Radio Lab today. Translation. It's time to begin. We'll have eight experiments in translation, transcreation. Lesson number one. The best poem was by my mother. Now you try. Hello? Hi there. Hi. Is that Doug? Yes. Oh, boy. So uh, this episode was inspired by a guy named Doug. Doug Hofstadter, professor of cognitive science, Indiana University, Bloomington. Uh, you may know him as the guy who wrote Gödel Escher Bach, which was a uh, hugely influential book in certain circles, uh, published in, I think, 1979. But we actually got interested in him, uh, thanks to our producer, Lynn Levy, because of an obsession of his, which predates that. 16. I was 16. The year 1961. I was taking a French literature class, and one day I came across this poem. A tiny little poem that kind of sat right in the middle of the page. Like a long, thin sausage, vertical, uh, you know, three syllables per line. So it was super skinny. And 28 lines long. And long. And it was delightful. It was very cute and funny. I fell in love with the poem immediately and memorized it. I still know it by heart. The poem is basically a get well card. It's written by this guy, Clement Moreau, who was a poet in the early 1500s. At the court of a queen. And And he wrote the poem for uh, this queen's daughter. She was seven or eight and she had gotten sick. The flu or something. And this poem was supposed to cheer her up. And and I thought it was very sweet. Could you say it in French? Yeah, let's just hear it first. Yeah. Okay, it's called A une demoiselle malade to a sick demoiselle, so to speak. Sick young lady. A sick young lady. Ma mignonne, je vous donne le bonjour. Le séjour, c'est prison. Guérison recouvrée, puis ouvrez votre porte et qu'on sorte vitement. Car Clément le vous mande. Va, friande, de ta bouche qui se couche en danger pour manger confiture. Si tu dures trop malade, couleur fade, tu prendras et perdras l'embonpoint. Dieu te doit, santé bonne, ma mignonne. Oh my God, you must have gotten so many chicks when you were 16. Know, that was really <laughs> Exactly the opposite. I was, I was, the, I wish. <laughs> Okay, so he reads the poem, files it away deep in the corner of his mind. Fast forward about 20 years, he publishes his first book. It becomes very popular, and the publisher decides to have it translated. Into a number of languages, including French. In that process, which took years... It put me into the frame of mind of thinking, what kinds of crazy things can happen when you translate crazy texts? And all of a sudden, one day... That poem popped into his mind. And I said, ah, 
there's a challenge. Let's try to do this. And when you say challenge, like what was it? What is it? What is the challenge? Okay. What I meant was to. So here's the thing. He says, "You got this poem." Ma mignonne, je vous donne le bonjour. And if you just focus on the words, it's basically just this guy talking to a younger girl, saying, "Hello, my dear. I'm sorry you're sick. Being sick is like prison." Le séjour c'est prison. I, Clément, wish you to open your doors, get out into the world. Car Clément le vous demande. Get out of bed, eat some jam. Confiture. So you don't look so pale and lose your plump shape. Et perdra l'en bon poids. You know, it's sort of like get better. Here's to your good health. Dieu te doit santé bonne, ma mignonne. But just saying those words in English misses the whole spirit of the poem. The tone, the lightheartedness. And, and this is key for Doug, it also ignores the poem's form. It's wonderfully catchy. Little sausage shape on the page, the fact that the lines... Rhyme, you know, A-A-B-B-C-C-D-D. And uh, the first line, ma mignonne, is identical to the last line, ma mignonne. So it sort of has the feel of a palindrome. It has the poet's name in the middle of the poem. Clément le vous monde. Oh, and I forgot. Did I say three syllables per line? No, you didn't. I, not of yet. Of course, three syllables per line. I mean, that's crucial. And then also 28 lines long. So all of those things added up to a set of constraints, you might say, on me. So Doug sat down and got to work and uh, quickly became embroiled in the question of, like, how do you translate this poem? I mean, along the way... He even began to make uh, little grids of possibilities for different lines of the poem. For example, Va friande de ta bouche qui se couche en Like this line that basically says, don't wallow in bed. I had a lot of possibilities, and I'll just read you the uh, little diagonal display here. Instead of spurting blood in bed, instead of burping in your bed, instead of bursting out in bed, instead of lurking in your bed, instead of hurtling out of bed, instead of hurting there, in instead bed. of squirming in your instead bed, instead of slurping slop in instead bed, of burning up in bed, instead of turning blue in bed. On and on. And I came up with, you want me to read my first translation? Yeah, please. My sweet dear, I send cheer, all the best. Your forced rest is like jail. So don't ail very long. Just get strong. Go outside. Take a ride. Do it quick. Stay not sick. Ban your ache for my sake. Buttered bread while in bed makes a mess. So unless you would choose that bad news, I suggest that you'd best soon arise so your eyes will not glaze. Douglas prays health be near, my sweet dear. So, so Clément is now Douglas. Yeah, yeah Clément I, became Douglas, and I, I like the word. But the jam here. became bread, though. Buttered bread. A buttered bread. Buttered bread. Yes. Yeah. Well, I just figure jam and jelly—they are words, but the words represent concepts, and the concepts have a kind of a halo around them. I mean, when you talk about jelly, you're implicitly talking about bread and things that you spread it on. Oh, how interesting! Some people like just stick their fingers in jelly. No bread needed. Okay, okay, fair enough. <laughs> Feeling like he hadn't quite nailed it, Doug sent the poem to one of the guys that translated his first book into French. Yeah. A guy named... Oddly enough, Bob French. And Bob was... <laughs> <laughs> and I said, hey, Bob, can you do it? And uh, Bob said, well, I'll give it a try. Fairest friend, let me send my embrace. Quit this place, its dark halls and dank walls. In soft stealth regain health. Dress and flee off with me, Clement, who calls for you. Very different in tone and really quite marvelous. He got the uh, pale face in there. He got the jam. He put 
Clement's name in the middle. But at the same time, it didn't have the lightness. The tone is much more ancient. Which you could argue, well, it's an ancient poem. But Doug says, no, 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 there's a bigger problem. It was 30 lines long, so extra long. And 28 was a sacrosanct number. Well, that's just two lines, though. <laughs> no, 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 no. Clément Marot wrote a three-syllable poem of 28 lines that rhymed wonderfully. And the essence of his poem was a form rather than a, uh, than a message. That is, the message was get well. Which is pretty simple. But Doug would argue, no, it was the form. That's what made the thing funny and charming. And so the question for him was, who could get the feel but nail the form? To make a long story short, he ended up sending the poem out to like 60 people. Doctoral students, whom I sweet, I entreat. One regard. Oh, tis hard, dear recluse. Colleagues, friends, chickadee, I decree a fine day. He even got his wife to do one. Dart away from your cage and engage in brave flight so you might flee the croup. It was all bird-themed. Hope you swoop into ham, apple jam, and French bread. Did you go running around from town to town saying, hey, I got a little poem. Anybody want to give I it a translation? I certainly did. I am a person of binges. This began a binge, you might say. <laughs> <laughs> and that binge ended up becoming a 700-page book filled with translations of this poem. Go ahead and read the best one now. This is the yeah, best right, one. Yeah, right, right. No, this is not the best one. <laughs> it this is, is just one. one. No, right. stop it. Okay, here He's we go. Read <laughs> okay, okay. This is also one of his, but like the 20th one he did. Pal petite, gal so sweet, hug from Doug. Some dumb bug dragged you down. Zap that frown. Feel the urge, bugs to purge. From the scourge, you'll emerge in a trice. Sound advice from ahem, Doug slash Clem. So smash flu. Come, you who. Come, you who live to chew. Sheets as chew. Sweets, let's chew. Pop a tart. Make your heart palpitate. Clem's mandate. Sure hope God cures your bod. Head to feet, palpitate. Sure hope God cures your bod. How <laughs> <laughs> could you not I must admit the... it's humorous. Yeah. Although not the best, he says. I, I, I do want to get to my mother's translation yeah, because my mother's was somehow... I'm going to have to look it up here. Where was it? Where in the world was it? This book is long and complicated. And <laughs> <laughs> this one from his mom, he says, came along years after he started. Here it is. And he thinks it might be the winner. High toots, get well. Hospital's prison and prison's hell. Get well, flee your cell. Clement's orders in a nutshell. Go pig out. Ope wide your mouth. Keep those sweetmeats going south. Unless you're hale, you'll turn pale. Lose ooh-la-la that wiggles your tail. God restore good health to you, my little flower, mon petit chou. Wow, that's cool. Notice that she doesn't begin the poem and end the poem with the same line. She doesn't have 28 lines. She has maybe about 16 lines. Uh, she doesn't pay any attention to syllable count. You must have hated yeah, this, this one. This I so did. My first reaction was, oh, well, no, Mom, come on. What are you doing? <laughs> Uh, didn't you pay any attention to the form? And and she said, I did what I wanted to do. This is my feeling, you know, just that's what I did. And actually, you know, I have to say it has stood the test of time. It has some kind of pizzazz that no other one ever had. But if she and, didn't respect the form, she didn't do the syllables, she didn't rhyme it the way it's supposed to rhyme, she didn't give you 28 lines, she even like have that practically. Mm -hmm. Is that a translation then, or is that just a mom? I don't, what Let is that? a hundred flowers bloom. <laughs> As I got more and more deeply into this poem, my philosophy started to become 
Chairman Mao's statement, let 100 flowers bloom. In other words, you can look at it from so many angles, and each new angle enriches it and makes it more fun. All right, but you can't read 100 versions of every poem that you want to read. Okay, okay, <laughs> I agree. Uh, you're right. It I, does I make me know. question, though, the, the rules of engagement in a way. There are no like, rules. Is, there are no rules. What, it's all informal. Okay, but there's jam in one of the translations and ham in the other. And they're like, they're factually different <laughs> food substances. <laughs> Somehow, like, the facts of the poem shouldn't be negotiable, should they? Well, what, is, what do you mean by a fact? I mean, the, a fact about the poem is that it was written by somebody in French. <laughs> it's not in French anymore. Wait, but, but now here's what Jared, I think, was really wondering, is uh, the mission, we thought, was what was he saying, not... What do we make of what he's saying? What are the flavors of what he's saying? What are the variants of what he's saying? And what even beyond it? that, like, isn't the expectation that you as a translator are giving me him? Like, this, this man is lost to time, and now suddenly I get to experience him. But if a hundred flowers are blooming, that somehow feels like I'm not getting him at all. Obviously, you're getting to the question of what is translation and uh, can it be done. My My feeling is that even though these translations that we've heard are all very different, they all show something about Clément Marot. Doug's basic point is that, like, any person is kind of a universe. They're too big to comprehend in their entirety. And so any translation of, say, a poem or whatever is only going to get you a tiny piece of that person, a tiny refraction. I mean, look, we have one photograph of Frédéric Chopin. One photograph. And in that picture, he's, uh, he's scowling. What did Frédéric Chopin really look like? What was his smile like? You know, you look at a photograph of Chopin and you say, oh, this is what Chopin looked like. Well, no. Chopin looked like many things. Even the very day that that photograph was taken, he had thousands of different expressions on his face. But then what about a year earlier or 10 years earlier? I mean, knowing Chopin is a very complex thing. It's not one thing. It's a millions of different things that are united by analogy into something that we refer to as one thing. We should say we looked into it and there are actually two pictures of Chopin, but he's kind of scowling in both, or you can't really tell in the second one, it's too disintegrated, but no smiles. Lesson number two. Are you just talking or are you doing? Now you try. Number two. I hear I hear the sound of a telephone. Hello? A story from Greg Warner. Yes, hi, Jed. Greg is a NPR's East Africa correspondent. You are in, what, what time is it where you are? It's, um, 
It's evening. He's based in Nairobi. Around 7.30 in the evening, which is embarrassing because I just told you good morning in Swahili. Um, <laughs> but I forgot how to say good evening, so... Oh. Okay. So, Greg, I mean, we were just a... <laughs> Anyhow. <laughs> uh, we called Greg up because he had written this article for this great website called Transom.org about being a foreign reporter and working with translators and all the mishaps, you know, when you have to go from one language to another. But... There's actually a really good example that I didn't use in the piece about uh, the failure to communicate. I could tell you that story. Sure, sure yeah. So, so there's this word, and you wouldn't think of it as untranslatable, but it's the word serious. And when you serious? hear this like word a, serious, a, a, yeah, serious, like S-E-R-I-O-U-S. Okay. Um, in my experience, when you hear this word serious in East Africa, it does not mean solemn or thoughtful or, or stern. It actually almost never has something to do with your mood. What serious tends to mean is, are you just talking to me or are you serious? Are you doing something? And usually doing is like some kind of transaction, usually uh, financial. I've been asked by you know, many East African officials, are you going to be serious with me? And it obviously means, are you going to pay me a bribe? Oh. Usually I pretend to misunderstand at the key moment. I say, yes, I'm a very serious international journalists. And, um, but the story that I want to tell you uh, took place a couple of months ago. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'm really pleased to, to be back in Africa. Secretary Kerry Addis Ababa, visited Ethiopia and city of enormous energy and in a country. Just a few days before Kerry's visit, nine journalists had been arrested under this relatively recent anti-terrorism law that basically says that any criticism of the government is illegal. I had a series of very productive meetings this morning with my foreign minister counterparts. And, and uh, Secretary Kerry was giving this press conference. I shared my concerns about uh, a young Ethiopian blogger that I met last year, uh, not Nile Feleke, who, uh, with eight of his peers, have been imprisoned. And I firmly believe that the work of journalists, whether it's print journalists or in the Internet or media of other kinds, it makes societies stronger. You know, he said all the things that you'd expect him to say. He said, um, we believe that free speech and open dialogue is important to the economic development of a country, blah, blah, blah. But we remain committed to our partnership with Ethiopia. With the this Asia comment was also Africa, wrapped up in a lot of praise of Ethiopia. And I'd be delighted to answer a few questions. I'm not sure how that's you can do that. Then came time for questions. He took some vetted questions from the Ethiopian journalists, uh, two more from the traveling press. And to Kerry's credit, you know, give this gentleman, I want to give him a shot. I know he was very impatient. I'm gonna, he sort of, before he left the podium, he was like, you know what? We're just going to try something different. We're going to like call on an Ethiopian journalist. I want to make sure Thank we you. get a fair Thank distribution yeah. here. Kerry points at this one guy in the second row, uh, young guy in his 20s, boyish face, wearing a mustache. Well, I have only two questions for you, sir. I may have invited the hardest question of the day now, <laughs> but one question. Fair okay. enough. Okay. So let me choose. Uh, you have raised about the issues of uh, Nathanael Fellaka, who's a blogger, and his friends. Yeah. And then this guy's like, well, every time a journalist is arrested, the U.S. gives a statement about this. But these things are, this keeps happening. Repeated, repeating very much. So then he asks his question. Is it lip service or are you seriously concerned about their arrest? Is this lip service or are you seriously concerned? At this point, everybody's just 
not looking at Carrie. They're all looking at this journalist who obviously had to take considerable personal risks in a place like Ethiopia, in a crowd of journalists, including state-run TV stations. He's This guy's on camera asking this extremely sensitive question about the arrested journalists. We really demand a genuine answer from you. Thank you. And Carrie looks at him like... Well... <laughs> you got to be kidding. When I stand up in public and I, and I, and I say something... Uh, I, I, I try to be serious about it, and I think the fact that I'm doing that is serious. And when I raised him by name in my comments today... Uh, Carrie sounds to me like he's sort of insulted by the question, and, right. and yet... So, so remember, serious, the word serious in East Africa can be translated very much as, are you doing something, preferably uh, like a financial transaction, right? And so what this journalist is saying is... Are you just talking about this, or are you doing something? Maybe threatening Ethiopia with uh, withdrawing aid or withdrawing support. And Kerry says, I am very seriously talking about this. We have previously called for the release of these individuals, and that is the policy of our government, and it's a serious policy. Thank you you all very, very much. Appreciate it. And it seemed to me, maybe, you know, you can judge, but it seemed like he was almost like, Look, I'm like the most serious politician that's out there. I mean, I lost the presidential race in 2004 in part because I was deemed too serious by the American public. You know, like, <laughs> what are you accusing me of not being serious? We put in a number of requests to speak to John Kerry or someone in the State Department, but there was no response. Do you think he was aware of the misunderstanding? Who, Kerry? Or? No, uh, this uh, this fellow. Oh, yeah, no, no, I followed him out afterward. Hey, man. Um, can you pronounce your name for me? My name is Anania Sori. He's a, he's a young guy in his 20s. He's an independent journalist. Yeah, I used to work in different newspapers. And um, I was like, you know, when you, when you listen, what happened there? And I almost felt like a, some kind of cultural uh, guide. I mean, because oh. Americans think serious means I'm standing here, I'm not joking, I'm serious. But oh. when African space is serious, and I'm using it generally, they say, no, are you going to not just speak, are you going to do? Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly my point. Are you going to take sanctions, maybe? Against Ethiopia? Sanctions? Yeah. But do you feel maybe. that that question puts you at risk? Maybe, who knows? That is a job description, doing uh, journalism in Ethiopia. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you, yeah. thank you. I'll give you a call. Give me a call. Yeah. My number's on there. Yeah. Yeah. So that conversation was about five months ago. Did, do you know what his fate at all? I mean, have you found out whether, did he suffer for this question in any way? No, but I have his phone number, so I can give him a call and, and find out. Hello? Hi, Anani, it's, it's Gregory, Gregory Warner. Oh, Gregory, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. Is this- so I, I reached him by Skype. He told me that actually after that press conference, he did get strange calls to his home and some Facebook messages from people he didn't know telling him that he better rethink what he said. That I better line up with uh, the current government direction and that... Uh, they said you should line up with the government's priorities? Yeah. These messages were from the government? It's hard to tell. It has been reported that this Ethiopian anti-terrorism task force will wage social media attacks by getting people to send messages on its behalf. People in the anti-terrorism task force are the ones that uh, send this kind of message. And were they threatening? Yeah, some of them were 
you know, insulting and uh, that I would be punished accordingly when the time comes. And it might come one day. A newspaper he founded got shut down after publishing one issue, and he was planning for a while to flee to Nairobi. To secure my safety. Leave his wife and kid behind, and then maybe return, grab them, apply for asylum in the United States. You know, my mother and my older brother are based in U.S. Washington. Oh, okay. Washington. Like a lot of Ethiopians, he's actually got some relatives in the in the States. Did they hear that you asked a question to John Kerry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have heard that. What did your mom say? She says, please don't do that. It's not good. They might be, you know, targeting you. Things like that, you know. Moms are like that, eh? Yeah, moms are like that. Yeah. Sonse, dimma ja sonse, järätä boju. Radio Lab will continue in a moment. Message one. Hello, this is Doug Hofstadter calling. Hey, this is Gregory Warner, uh, NPR's East Africa correspondent. I'm supposed to read some text. Radio Lab is supported in part by the National Science Foundation and the Alfred T. Sloan Foundation. Enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Radio Lab is produced by WNYC and distributed by NPR. Uh, And also thanks to Transom.org, whose series on translation in radio stories uh, got me thinking about some of these stories. Okie doke. Thanks. Bye. End of message. Radio Lab is supported by Betterment. Let's talk about you and your money. You like your free time. You like to relax every now and then. You like to feel totally chill. But your money, your money likes to work. And Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. While you're catching up on sleep, your money is up early, earning 11 times the national average in a high-yield cash account. Your money is a multitasker, diversified in expert-built portfolios of low-cost ETFs. And your money is optimized with automated tax-efficient strategies, just like the pros use. Your money is a total workhorse, so you don't have to be. Because you've got Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. NYC Now delivers breaking news, top headlines, and in-depth coverage from WNYC and Gothamist every morning, midday, and evening. By sponsoring our programming, you'll reach a community of passionate listeners in an uncluttered audio experience. Visit sponsorship.wnyc.org to learn more. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. This is Radio Lab. Today, eight experiments in translation. Lesson number three. They called it shell shock. Duvargi gurpatash deskarga shell shock. Now you try. In this one, uh, Robert Krowich and our producer Soren Wheeler talk to writer Adam Gopnik about George Carlin. And why is George Carlin mentioned? Oh, because Carlin is the wonderful sort of folk philosopher of language. You're talking about the comedian, George Carlin? The comedian, yeah. 
Now this next thing, this next thing is about the English language. It's about little expressions we use. We, we all say them, the little sayings and expressions that we use all the time. Most it was one of his great subjects. We never really seem to examine these expressions. And all the more interesting because he, he didn't even have a high school education, you know, so it was not something that he got from schooling. And one of Gopnik's favorite Carlin riffs, and I really like this one too, is about how Carlin hated euphemism. I don't like words that hide the truth. I don't like words that conceal reality. I don't like euphemisms. And American English is loaded with euphemisms because Americans have a lot of trouble dealing with reality. And Carlin was wonderful about things like that, about bullshit as he called it. And we have no more old people in this country. No more old people. We shipped them all away and we brought in these senior citizens. <laughs> Isn't that a tip? And he was unsympathetic. The reason we use euphemism, I've just been through my father-in-law died four months ago. And we went through those same horrible business that we all go through in a intensive care ward where the doctors and nurse practitioners have a language that they've been taught. We just want your father to be comfortable. He's gravely ill. He's gravely ill means he's dying, right? And we want him to be comfortable means can we give him enough drugs so that he'll pass out before he dies and so on. And so it's certainly true that euphemism can be a repellent thing, but no one is fooled. What we're mocking is the absurdity of the effort to disguise something that you cannot disguise. But Carlin's real point was that it, it like dulls our reactions to it, that it actually has like a kind of a negative effect. And it gets worse with every generation. And he has this whole bit, it's about um, shell shock becoming PTSD. No, he goes, no, it goes, it's in four different things. In the First World War, that condition was called shell shock. They used to call it shell shock. Simple, honest, direct language. Two syllables. Shell shock. And then it became battle fatigue. Battle fatigue. Four syllables now. Takes a little longer to say. Doesn't seem to hurt as much. And then after it became battle fatigue, then it became operational exhaustion. Hey, we're up to eight syllables now. <laughs> then it became post-traumatic shock disorder. Still eight syllables, but we've added a hyphen. <laughs> and then it became PTSD. Post-traumatic stress disorder. The pain is completely buried under jargon. This was the Orwell notion that you could erase sensitivities if you blanded out the word. So if you stop saying, oh yeah, we just tortured the guy, if you say some phrase... Force of interrogation or enhanced interrogation. That makes a big difference. And part of what Carlin is saying is that like, now that it's PTSD, we are not having the appropriate reaction to it. I mean, it's shell shock. I'll bet you if we'd have still been calling it shell shock, some of those Vietnam veterans might have gotten the attention they needed at the time. I'll bet you that. I'll bet you that. But now you're putting your finger on the... This, this is where the, the rubber meets the road. Does the use of euphemism, does that really rob us of some understanding? And Adam Gopnik, surprisingly, says maybe not. The truth is just the opposite. We actually have more of an apparatus to help people with PTSD than they did in 1915 to help guys with shell shock. The reason the word gets more abstract is be exactly because you have a much more complicated and abstract system of support. It's not because... Do you think that's the reason it's called PTSD? Is because it's a more complex and, and... Yes, because think about what that evolution says. The initial thing was, oh, these guys are being driven crazy because the shells are exploding all around them on the Western Front. Gopnik says the thinking was, you know, it was temporary. The shell goes off, it explodes in a moment. They have a moment of shock and they need a moment of rest and then they can go back in. But by World War II, we were thinking, that's not quite right. It's not just shells exploding, right? It's the whole experience of battle. It's all the shooting and the death 
and the fear. So it becomes battle fatigue. You're trying to generalize it. You're trying to make it richer as a concept. But it also becomes fatigue versus shock. There's less violence in that. Right, because it because you're looking at guys who may not exhibit the symptoms of shock necessarily, but who've, over time it becomes impossible for them to go on. There's a wonderful film from World War II called Let There Be Light. These are the casualties of the spirit, the troubled in mind, men who are damaged emotionally. About guys with what they were then calling battle fatigue. And the reason they were calling it that was because you didn't necessarily see it right away. Then around Vietnam, he says, we realized you don't just see this on the battlefield. You see it with guys who aren't necessarily directly involved in battle. Right. And so the question became... What's the source of it? It's You say, well, it's nervous exhaustion. You say the human nervous system can only take it for so long, and then everybody's nervous system shuts down. Hence the term operational exhaustion. Now that's example. Again, when you're trying to enrich it, you're saying the guys aren't cowards. They're not in a state of shock. They're behaving the way all human beings do. And then you get more concerned about them and you say the real problem isn't they're just their experience on the battlefield. The problem is, is that they're in a constant state of disorder because it lingers on long after you think it's over. You can't just get these guys into a hospital for six months and think they're going to be better. They are permanently, you, they have post-traumatic shock. And then once you have a a uh, uh, whole apparatus to deal with it, then it becomes PTSD. My point is just that it's perfectly possible that the language of euphemism grows and becomes more abstract as, actu- as people actually are becoming more empathetic to the people who suffer from it. Soren, do you buy? I mean, he's he's basically turned Carlin on his <laughs> head and he's made these I mean, blander you know, and blander uh, words enrichments. <laughs> I, I have. I mean, my only move would be to hit play on Carlin. Poor people used to live in slums. Now the economically disadvantaged occupy substandard housing in the inner cities. And they're broke. They're broke. They don't have a negative cash flow position. They're broke. Because a lot of them were fired. You know, fired, management wanted to curtail Lesson number four. Imagine a lot of Coca-Cola-like bubbles on your tongue. Furcat de share Coca-Cola das bibidi 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 on the frage. Now you try. Pretty good. <coughs> this is Emily. My name's Emily Gassio, and I'm an artist. What's your name? Emily. Some of you may remember that uh, a couple years ago, we did a story about Emily where she'd been hit by a truck, gone into a coma, and then her boyfriend at the time, Alan, uh, had brought her back by writing on her hand. She's writing her name on the palm of my hand. Of all the stories we've ever done, I think this one has gotten the most response. And when we left that story, Emily had emerged from the coma and begun to recover, but she was blind. Totally blind, right? Yeah. And like no light, any nothing coming in. No. Okay. Needless to say, it was a very big adjustment. I just, you know, I just had to develop my own ways to navigate throughout the world and trust myself and 
And being a visual artist, she had to develop new ways to draw. I had crayons, and if you draw with crayons hard enough, you can feel the wax on the paper. Um, Yeah. But then one day in the summer of 2012, she gets a call. From the Lighthouse School in New York City. The Lighthouse School? Yeah, it's a school for the blind. Her mom had uh, found out that they were trying out this brand new technology. I think they were doing the study for the FDA. Very experimental, and her mom signed her up. Long story short, uh, Emily shows up to the Lighthouse School one day and walks into this room, and a guy named Ed gives her this thing. He gives me his device. Can you describe it? I mean, is it a big helmet? No, it's not. It's just like a regular pair of sunglasses. Though uh, they were a little heavier than your normal sunglasses, she says, because right on the front, like on the bridge of the nose, was a little camera pointing forward. And then attached to the sunglasses was a little wire. That ran out of the camera and down to this little square piece of metal. I think it's made out of titanium, and it's just like the size of a postage stamp. Or a little bit thicker, though. Ed explained to her that the little piece of titanium was filled with thousands of electrodes. And what was going to happen is that the camera was going to convert images into patterns of electricity on that little square. So he told her to take the little square. Place it on your tongue. Put it right on the center of your tongue. And close your mouth. So I put it on and they turned it on. Um, And it was like, it started to tickle. Imagine a lot of Coca-Cola like a lot of bubbles on your tongue and always like prickly, prickly feelings. The idea behind this thing, according to science writer Sam Keen, author of The Tale of the Dueling Neurosurgeons, is that we actually see with our brain, not our eyes. I mean, it might seem like our eyes are doing the seeing and our ears are doing the hearing and our fingers and tongue are doing the tasting and the touching, but that's actually not how it works. Each of our senses sends signals into the brain as electricity. Little blips on nerves. And it is the brain that then converts those little blips into what you perceive as a sight or a sound or a smell. Now, obviously, someone who is blind, their retina is not sending those signals anymore. But what if there is another way to get signals for light and dark and color into our brains? In all of our brains, there are lots and lots of pathways going from every part of the brain to every other part of the brain. And normally, your brain isn't using those pathways, even though they exist. It's like there's a road there, but it's shut down and traffic can't be on it. But what if you could open up some of those routes? He just let me uh, sit with it on for an hour or two hours. Emily says at first she had no idea what was happening. She would just swivel her head around and feel the patterns on her tongue change. And every time I looked around, he'd say, Oh, that's a chair. That's a door. That's me. That's your mom. (laughs) And it went on like this for a while. Ed showed her a ball and a square. A plastic banana. And nothing was really happening for her, except for the prickly feelings on her tongue. But then there was this moment. Ed had this really long styrofoam rod, and he flashed it in front of me. He moved it up and down in front of my face. And I was like, oh my God, what was that? Suddenly, she says, she just saw it. I was like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) It just happened on its own. What did it look like? So in my mind's eye, it looked like a long, white, skinny stick. Could you see the texture of the stick? Or? Um, no, I couldn't see texture. I couldn't see 
in three dimensions. It was very flat. It was kind of like that kid's toy light bright. Yeah. So imagine like a black screen and little tiny white dots. All arranged in a line. So Emily was allowed to keep the Brainport device for about a year and a half. And during that time, the light bright resolution of it did get better as her brain learned to speak tongue. It was awesome. When I saw the people moving in the car. And one of the things that really struck me in our conversation was I asked her about this video that her mom had sent me showing her wearing the device and walking down the street. And she told me that usually, you know, now that she's blind, when she's walking down the streets of New York City. Especially uptown, where the streets are a lot wider. She says people see her and her white cane and walk a really wide circle around her. So I... Uh, Yeah, I hardly ever notice other people walking around me. It feels like I'm just walking alone. I can always hear the traffic and the sounds of traffic, but not other people. But she says when she put the device on and put that little sensor on her tongue, the sidewalk came alive. I thought it was amazing. Like, I didn't know this many people were on the street at the same time as me and now they're all they're all there again but she described them in a way that sounded almost like a painting like really soft blotches everything was really soft like soft blotches of ink that could move They were walking, and I could see their legs moving, and I could see them, their gait. But I couldn't see them clearly, like I couldn't see their features or whether they were wearing a shirt or shorts or a dress or pants. I just, like, see their shadows. And every now and then I see the light casted on them. Really? Yeah. I imagine somehow, like, underwater creatures... Uh-huh. Squishy, jellyfish-like? Yeah. Yeah, like lighting up. Yeah, like that. And that, for Emily, is what it's like to translate the city with your tongue. New York City becomes this, uh, hazy sea of walking fish that make their way along in the sunshine. Lesson number five. I feel like oil futures are going to crash today. 
Burda de bir petrol pufta? Now you try. Next up, producer Tim Howard. Yes, hi, hello. So when I heard about this story with Emily and the brain port, I immediately called up this guy. Hey, John, which microphone? Is it this one or this one? That one, okay. You might remember him. I'm David Eagleman. I'm a neuroscientist at Baylor College of Medicine. Called him up because I came across this thing that he's working on that is sort of like the next generation of crazy. It's called... Uh, the the vest. vest, which stands for the variable extrasensory sensory transducer. And it's it's a vest that you wear underneath the clothing. And this vest has 24 motors on it, little vibratory motors, just like the ones in your cell phone. And the vest connects to your phone. So we pick up sound. Hi, this is Time Warner Cable calling with an opportunity for you to provide us with valuable feedback. Through a cell phone. And the cell phone does all the computational work to then convert that sound into patterns of vibration on the vest. And you feel a buzzing all over your torso. Different motors running at different amplitudes. It actually changes every 20 milliseconds, so it's a moving pattern. And it might seem impossible that you could actually extract something useful about what's being said. But... When David brings deaf volunteers into the lab and has them do a a particular training on the vest, he says that over the course of 12 days... People get really good at word recognition. Somehow they begin to intuitively recognize that this means hi, or blue, or chair. If you tried to concentrate on it and figure out how each motor translates to some part of that sound, you would never figure it out. But the good news is... You don't have to do it consciously. The brain is a specialist at extracting statistical information. And because the brain is so good at this kind of translation, says David, what he really wants to do is use this vest to create new senses. So what if you fed in stock market data? Pocket 10! Ox 70 bit! Five, five, 25! So 25, Ox 75 bit at 78. And converted that into the buzzing. Could you develop an immediate perceptual experience of the economic movements of the planet? And would you, without having any conscious awareness of how or why you're feeling a certain way, could you have an intuition like, you know, I kind of feel like oil futures are going to crash today. You wouldn't be analyzing all this information. You would just feel it. We're also working on feeding in... You are seeing a tremendous amount of rainfall. Real-time weather data from the, let's say, 200 miles around you. Question is, would you end up having an intuition... Peak skill, ice storm. ...that's better than what the weatherman can tell you on the news? Or this one. What if we took... 500,000 tweets per second, passed it through some natural language processing to sort of have a a higher level summary of what's going on. And pump all that information through the vest. Would you develop a sense of what's happening on the planet where you suddenly say, ooh, I feel like something just happened in Nairobi. And, oh, I think the Canadians have just, you know, finalized their election of something. And I, I don't know what this will be like yet, but there's no reason to expect any limit on, on what the brain will be able to develop an immediate perceptual experience about. More experiments in translation in a moment. This is Darlene calling from Kampala, Uganda. 
Radiolab is supported in part by the National Science Foundation and by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Radiolab is supported by BetterHelp. Whether it's already 2 a.m. on a fun night out, graduation time, a new year, we can find ourselves wishing we had more time, wondering where it all went. But there's a question. If we were magically given that time back, what would we do with it? Perhaps you'd spend more time with a friend that you've lost touch with or petting your dog or just noticing the sweetness of doing nothing. The best way to let those special things into your life is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority going forward. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Radiolab today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Radiolab. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. This is Radiolab. And today, experiments in translation. Lesson number six. Thank you very much, Interpreter 3940. Thank you, Tarsukabakor, Now you try. For an interpreter, you really do get a spectrum of life. This is Natalie Kelly. You know, you get a little taste of all these different things that are happening in the world. It really opens your eyes. <laughs> she wrote a book called Found in Translation, and years ago... You know, I grew up in a very small town in the Midwest. Back when she was just a kid. I remember going to work with my dad, and there was a janitor, and my dad said, you know, he actually speaks another language, another language on top of English. And she says she remembers her seven-year-old brain being like, wow, there's a whole nother language beyond English that I could learn. Fast forward many, many years, Natalie goes to college and she just started learning languages. Yes, Spanish, Japanese, Arabic, German, Italian, whatever I could get my hands on. <laughs> because she had this basic idea that it would just connect her to the wider world. But what it actually led to, at least initially, was this very strange job. Called telephone interpreting. This is a job I never actually thought to think about until now. But basically, when anyone calls a business and there's a language barrier, the operator can call a switchboard and patch in someone like Natalie. So I could interpret for them. And Natalie, like a lot of these telephone interpreters, worked remotely, which meant she'd be in her house alone in a room, and every few minutes... Hello, this is Interpreter 3940. How may I help you? She'd get a call. And it could be anything. One minute you're interpreting for, could be a celebrity who's booking a hotel or a restaurant in Spain. Then you're interpreting for a court hearing. And then you're interpreting for a hospital. And uh, what was the most memorable call you ever got? I was, um, well, let me put it this way. I got a call. You never know where the call's going to come from. And I heard that it was a 911 call. And most of these calls are actually not real emergencies. But I knew immediately something was different. The dispatcher was connected, and I heard this woman whispering on the other side of the phone. She said, Me va matar. Me va matar. He's going to kill me. Oh, my God. The dispatcher said, Where is he? Donde uh-huh. está? And she said, Está en la casa. In the house? Yeah, he's in the house. And then the dispatcher said, And where are you? Debajo de la cama. What's that mean? Under the bed. Oh, my God. Uh, does he have a gun? Tiene una pistola? See, si. Where is he now? 
in the hallway. What's he doing? He's opening the door, and then click. Oh, f off, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was just a click. That's it? That's it. Yeah. If it sort of gets me about that is like, it, it, what a weird, like if you got into it for the connection, then what a weird place to end up in where like, you're by yourself in your room and then suddenly you're dropped into the middle of the most intense moment in a person's life, but then ripped out before you can know who the person was or what's about to happen to them. And then you're back in your room again by yourself. That happens and then the phone rings again and then you're, hello, this is interpreter 3940, how may I help you? <laughs> and you're back to it and you're interpreting, you know, something, you know, literally within a minute after that phone call ends. And the next person is probably trying to buy trading stamps in, in, in Spanish or something. Yeah. I, I can't imagine what it would be like to have to skip and jump like that. Lesson number seven. He got down and dirty, so I got down and dirty too. For the Darkestuden, for Skorkasienet, Darkestuden Dorf. Now you try. Okay, so this next story, um, this next translation story, or maybe it's a mistranslation story. I don't know. Now you try. Hey. This next story, actually, um, we should say, it contains a lot of obscenities, a lot of obscenities coming up, a lot of strong uh, graphic language. If that's not something you're into, or if you've got kids around, I would advise you to skip forward about nine and a half minutes. All right, if you're still here. Yeah, we're rolling. This one comes from our executive producer, Ellen Horn. Okay, so you should start the story, Ellen Horn. Yeah, so how did, did were you at this show? Like, Yeah, what? You, so you guys know Nick Nusifora, who helped us arrange the, the tour for Radiolab? Sure. So he invited me to come to it. All right, it's Oddball 2014. <laughs> So it's the Oddball Comedy Festival. And when we got there, you know, there's like huge crowds. Tens of thousands of people kind of crowds? Like 14,000 people. Oh, my God. Yeah. So we sat down and... Uh, From the state of New Jersey, the Roastmaster General Jeff Ross! Do you guys know Jeff Ross? No. no. He's an insults comedian. Yes. He gets up. He's the MC You're for the night. And he kicks the show off. How the hell are you, Jersey? Yeah! And... How you doing, sir? He starts picking folks out of the crowd. What's your name? Rob, I loved you on To Catch a Predator. <laughs> look at these two chicks. How you doing, ladies? You look very cute. Two fives make a ten. Duh. And then he looks to his left and... Hi! There's a lady doing sign language over there. He sees the sign language interpreter. Can I come over there? She looks like she's in her 50s, brunette, glasses, wearing tank top. What's your name? Kim? Give it up for Kim. Stadium gives the polite uh -huh. clapping for yeah. Kim. This is wild, Kim. And then he says, So anyway, I was jerking off the other day. <laughs> <laughs> and Kim gives a like. She has to, tra is she translating him? Oh, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> she cups her hand and... 
softly moves it up and down in the air, gets a big laugh. And so Jeff Ross, seeing this, he escalates. Then I stuck my thumb in my nose just since I had a booger in there. So to translate, she has to stick her thumb in her nose. And I decided to stick my pinky in my own Oh. Kim does a few signs and then makes it look like she's sticking her hand in her butt. Crowd goes wild. We're going to have a lot of fun tonight, Kim. So Jeff Ross takes it even further. And afterwards, I'm going to get out my vibrator with a hand crank <laughs> and give it to you old school style. <laughs> so now she has to do signs for like a vibrator, hand the crank, m- sex. I was squeezing my d- this morning for like a half an hour. And it felt so good. And she's having to, like, rub her own boobs. <laughs> I'm troubled by how funny this is. I love you, Kim. Well, yeah. Because here's the thing. Halfway through the show, I noticed that Kim wasn't there anymore. Hmm. She didn't translate for Sarah Silverman. She didn't translate for... Did someone BCK. else, or was there no translation? No, there's just no translation. Huh. So... It made me wonder, what did I see there? What was going on? Jeff Ross was clearly using her, but was Kim okay with that? Okay. So I found a list of all the sign language translators in the state of New Jersey. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? And I found her. Okay, my name is Kim Van Cleef, and I'm a certified American Sign Language interpreter, and we're here in Ocean Grove, New Jersey. Turns out that Kim lives part of the year, and and she has her entire life in a religious community on the beach in New Jersey. (laughs) When I'm not doing comedy, I'm doing religious sign language. (laughs) I interpret the services, and I'm in the choir. And there's this venue nearby that does these big stadium shows. There's any deaf ticket buyers. The venue's required, by law, to provide a sign language interpreter. So... PNC called me. I do all their their concerts, all the musical concerts, which I, I've been doing for years. You know, Goo Goo Dolls, James Taylor, whatever. But I always can prep up for them. I get the set list. I go to lyrics.com. I always, you know, because a lot of times I don't know the Goo Goo Dolls. You know, I like Frank Sinatra and, you know, hip hop. When he asked me to do comedy, I'm like... There's no prep for that. I didn't know what was coming at me. I had no idea who any of these comedians are. Of course, I went Did you know any of the comedians? Eventually, I asked her about the whole Jeff Ross thing. So he's basically having you harass yourself. Yes. And I am most curious to sort of find you and follow up and just find out, like, how that felt. Well. And she says the moment Jeff Ross started getting raunchy, she had a choice. There's, there's registers in sign language. Registers. Yeah. You can be formal, you can be casual, or you can be intimate. And you can pick signs from all of those registers. Like, take, for example, the word... Mm-hmm. Now, the polite way to do it would to maybe spell it. So, F-U-C-K, or... You know, there's the regular gesture. You could do this. So you're, you're giving us a finger. Two middle fingers, yeah. You know, there's quite a few. She was just getting started. And then there's this one that actually shows people doing the action. <laughs> she takes out two fingers on each hand and smashes them together. There's the, you know, this way, which is even more graphic. Arms out, just hold it thrust. <laughs> so you're receiving the physical act. Yeah. So she had a lot of options. But with Jeff Ross... She figured that what was necessary was this kind of intimate graphic tone. He was down and dirty. I was down and dirty. So you didn't have any discomfort with any of that? 
or uh, little? No, I was having such a good time. I really, I really was enjoying it. So then why do you think she left? So this never occurred to me. She was there for one girl, one deaf girl. What? What do you mean? So there's 14,000 people there, but one ticket buyer was deaf and asked for a sign language interpreter. Just one? Yeah. A young girl was there with her mom. Wow. But she, Did she know where this client was? Yeah. Or? Oh, yeah. She was in that position on the stage because she was near where the client was. And so the whole time she's signing towards the client and seeing her reaction. Can you describe what your client was doing? She was like, oh. Oh, so I see you're holding your hand over your over your eyes. She said the client, I mean, it was like a whole body cringe. Because I think she thought she was getting a lot of attention. Like the client was mortified. And at intermission, my client signed back to her. We're going to take off. We're going to go home now. So I'm like, okay. And so Kim left because the client left. Yeah. I mean, did you manage to talk to this girl? No. I've emailed her. I got the venue to call her, but she hasn't gotten back to me. Huh. I'm suddenly feeling bad for this girl. I mean, it feels somehow like she got a raw deal. You know? Would you, if you had been her, if you'd been Kim, would you have, do you think, just enjoyed yourself a little less, been a little less graphic, and been a little less uh, playing with the comedian? I think I would have dialed it down. Knowing me? Oh, my God, yeah. You would have dialed it down. He's a good man, Jada Boomer. <laughs> no, but it's a, a terrible it's actually, translator. It, no, why, why would they make me a terrible translator? I mean, this is one girl in a crowd of 14,000, and the translator is there for her, not the 14,000. No, but remember, think about what the job is. She came to a comedy but, show. But in any, was there in any way in which Kim had an obligation to represent the client? No, you know, she's think, in the middle between the no, two. I think that that's. And I, I think it's a fair question. It. I think it's a fair question. I mean, she's not just there to represent Jeff. Jeff on stage. Yes, she is. No, she's there to to be a, a, a mutual representative of both people. No, why she's not? She's at a comedy show. She's in the show. She's translating the show from the stage. You match the tone of the person. That's what Kim said. And if they're yelling and screaming, your signs are bigger. Your face is exaggerated. Uh, you know, I made it clear the tone that he was projecting. But I asked her, like, do you feel bad at all? Did you Do you feel like you lost sight of her and you started translating for the whole crowd? Did it feel like you went behind enemy lines at all? She just said no. If the whole audience was deaf, I would have done the same thing. Huh. I, I was doing my job. Yes, because that's what a translator does. A translator is making what is happening up there available to me not creating a middle space. Hmm. And I guess you could argue that if she had made the choice to fingerspell so that she protected the girl, you could see that from her perspective as betraying, betraying the client because she's not giving her the full experience. But it's weird because in her making the equal experience and her doing that, she makes it an experience that the girl doesn't want to have. Yeah. Well. Although Kim did tell me she could have taken it way farther. For I sure. Do the intimate. Oh, no, I did not. The intimate register. No, I did not go there. <laughs> I did a casual, but yeah. yeah, casual. <laughs> Teen 
Lesson number eight. How does it make the ribosome without a ribosome to make the ribosome? Curve shitje de ribosoma, ber hiskaktor ribosoma de petpite de ribosoma. Now you try. Do you guys mind if, in the remaining few minutes, we go on on an RNA fishing expedition? <laughs> sure, sure. Because the uh, here's here's the here's our quandary, Carl. Okay. So we're What's your situation? Like, we're doing a show on trans. Okay. So recently, we sat down with a reporter and science writer, Carl Zimmer, to talk about RNA, all things. We were talking about something else, and RNA came up at the end. Because here's why: ever since we started doing this show, Robert got his. <laughs> <laughs> he got his. I got a little insistent. I think a little what you insistent because uh, yeah. you were like RNA. We got to do RNA. Yes, I said that. RNA. And I was like, "What do you want to do?" And you were like, "I want to do RNA." And I was like, "But is there a story?" And you're like, "No." No, R- I didn't say that. I just said that that uh, that that if you understood what RNA does, you'd realize that translation is profoundly important to our existence. That's what I said. Yeah. Well, as often happens, you wore me down. And I was like, "All right, fine. Let's just try it." And it'll say. So when we were talking with Carl Zimmer, we brought it up. Now, unfortunately, I think this is a day when you were out of town. I think your your son was getting married. Yes, he was. And uh, Carl was doing like tag team work for me. (laughs) Okay. All right. So the definition of translation in biology is taking a sequence in DNA and using the genetic code to translate it into proteins. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And the discovery of this was maybe even more exciting than the discovery of the double helix structure. Really? Yeah. It was bigger than Watson and Crick? Yeah. Well, at least equivalent. Wow. So here's the quick story. So what happened was... Okay, so just to set the table here, we all know that DNA is a thing and that when you're born, you get half your DNA from your mom, half your DNA from your dad. Now, Francis Crick and and, uh, James Watson just figured out the structure of DNA, that basically the recipe of DNA, your recipe, is comprised of four bases and a long string. A, T, C, and G. That's it. But here's the problem, see, like we humans, we're more than DNA. We are these fleshy, peeing piles of muscle and bone. And all of that stuff, all the stuff stuff of us comes from proteins. Yeah. We have like 100,000 different proteins in our body different kinds of proteins. So the question was... Like, how how does all that get generated? Like, how do those four simple bases become the amino acids that become the hundreds of thousands of proteins that make us us? How do you make the translation? Hmm. People were thinking of this as just this incredibly complicated problem that might never be solved. And the first person to really think seriously about this was not a geneticist. It was a cosmologist named George Gamow. Huh. And Gamow just said, wait a minute, this isn't that complicated. This is just cryptography. This is a code problem. Gamal thought, okay, I know that DNA is, contains four bases, A, T, C, and G, and I know that they somehow create hundreds of thousands of proteins. So I just need to think of, of a clever way of, you know, creating a little code machine where you put in the DNA... A, T, C, A, A, C, C, G, G, A, T, C, A, G, G, G... ...sequence, and then out comes the protein. Like, how, what, what simple code could I do to do that? And just sitting there, no experiments, no nothing, just thinking, this guy Gamow decides... I think that our cells read our genes three bases at a time. Like, instead of AT, CG, AC, Gamow thought maybe it's ATA, CCG, TCA, AAC, AAG, ATT... In other words, whatever it was that was reading the DNA in the cell, maybe it was reading it in triples, not pairs. 
because if you have sets of three uh, rather than two, Gamma figured, well, that mathematically would give you more possibilities, and that might put you on the path to making all those hundreds of thousands of proteins. Yep. Now, this was just a guess, but shortly after, the double helix duo, Watson and Crick... And a group of other scientists worked it all out. They, they figured out how you get from, physically get from DNA into proteins. Here's how it works, sort of. Inside the cell, the DNA is sitting there, all coiled up. A set of molecules come along, attached to it, unzip it. And make a copy of it. This copy is now made of RNA, which is like DNA, very similar. Still in a basic sort of four-letter format. But it's now on the move because it pedals over to this big old factory in the cell called... The ribosome. It's just this, this, this crazy, floppy, convulsive collective of molecules. And once the RNA copy is inside this big factory, another kind of RNA comes over and begins to... Psst, Read the bases three at a time, like... Okay, uh, A-T-A, well, that must be... Oh, you know, G-G-C, well, that's going to be... And it begins to create this chain of amino acids, which are sort of the beginning of proteins. And eventually, the ribosome will take this chain and... eject it out. So that they can... Do their thing, you know, grab oxygen or cut up your food. Or make your hair or the cartilage in your ear, your teeth or your toes or the neurons that carry the thoughts you think. Or whatever. It does displace the, quote, author of you. Because, I mean, I remember growing up thinking, oh, DNA is my sort of like manual or my blueprint or something. All all of me is in there and that's just somehow it opens and then out, out pops me. But you're saying that there's this thing that is reading these three mm-hmm. base pairs and mm-hmm. forming any of 100,000 proteins? Suddenly I'm thinking that's where their game is, not, not the DNA, but in the thing that's reading the DNA. Well, yeah. I mean, DNA is just a totally meaningless molecule just flopping around unless there is a way of reading it. But doesn't the, build, the, 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 the reader of the DNA come from the DNA? Sure. See, that's just weird. Yes. So you have, so you have genes for the parts of the ribosome. At this point, uh, producer Tim Howard and uh, producer Soren Wheeler stepped in. It's like a book that births its own reader That's that will read the book. Not exactly, though, because that does you, – you, you are sort of putting DNA up on that pedestal. But it, in se- so sequentially, you, it you, is. Uh, hmm? Sequentially, it is. It's, it's, it's first. What is? D- DNA. DNA. How is DNA first? Well, you're saying it's in, in the order of events. You begin with DNA, and then after that, you get the ribosome and the RNA. Events of what? Of you, okay, but but you got to bear in mind that you—I I don't know how far back you want to go with you. <laughs> no, seriously, where do we start with you? Do you want to start Jad the fertilized egg? Well, uh, sure, yes. Okay, yes. Jad the fertilized egg has DNA and these ribosomes. Oh, so the readers are already present. When a cell divides, two new copies of DNA go into each new cell, but they also divide up all the ribosomes from the original cell. So they're taking the factories with them. Uh, so you, the DNA is never without the code. Okay, so it's like Moses with the tablets together. <laughs> right? Um, uh, like Moses. Take it or is it Noah? Can I just say I've never thought of it that way? <laughs> so I might need to think about this. Um, right. well, what makes the ribosomes then? Does it come from the DNA? I thought you just said that. <laughs> yes. It, it, but it, how does it make the ribosome without a, 
the ribosome to help it make the ribosome. What? Wait. How, okay. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> well, how, we need a translator the, the in here. DNA codes for the ribosome. So mm-hmm. how do you make the ribosome without a ribosome to translate the code to make the ribosome? You couldn't. Wait a second. I'm I'm so you confused gotta go, right uh, now. You've got to take the DNA and the ribosome partnership all the way back through billions of years. These two parts of the system evolved and became dependent on each other very early in the history of life. In fact, Carl says a lot of biologists think that life started out as just RNA, no DNA. And so you would basically have uh, these little little organisms that would have these little kind of protogenes made of RNA, and eventually um, these RNA molecules started to connect amino acids together hmm. to make the little building blocks of proteins. So you're saying that People generally think RNA came first. That is one of a couple um, leading okay. hypotheses today. So it's possible that RNA came first, then DNA. Somehow, so. suddenly, I'm thinking, oh, we yeah. should be, we should have been talking about RNA all the, all along. <laughs> well, I mean, just in general, RNA has been incredibly neglected and ignored. And um, so, the Bible, instead of in the beginning was a word, should have been in the beginning was the person reading the word. Or in the beginning was the code. Yeah. Did you guys feel the earth shake just now? I really, no, there, there was some kind of vibration happening. And in my head, too, because I was thinking, <laughs> I finally get it now. Like, I get it. Good. Because DNA got sold to us as like, this is the first step in understanding the mystery of life, right? But it somehow doesn't feel like that anymore. I'm suddenly like, RNA, the ribosome. That's where the real mystery is. I, I, I like the way you're thinking. And so Jan discovers that we are all translations, that translation is the true mystery, the deep secret of life. Who invited you in here? (laughs) If I said I told you so, you wouldn't be able to translate that, honestly. (laughs) Very good. And now, let's say goodbye. Turva dishkevi bye-bye. Now you try. Naike puduron sarang, naike dal koman sarang, nalbune tuti anil. Tangsinine isengi wandrio mandin, kuriko nan guroke dul sang. Naike puduron sarang, naike tin tangans. I'm done. <laughs> this one's so hard. It doesn't make any sense because all the syllables are totally off. Okay. Kuriko nan hang sango. Yay. That heroic translation from the Korean of Ora Lee go, is by Margaret Glasby. So thank you, Margaret. Yeah, and thanks to all our singers. Uh, Fiesta, who sang Old MacDonald in Bambara, which is the Malayan language. Catherine McCarthy, who did our Italian version of Yankee Doodle Dandy. Lea Torres, uh, who did the German I've Been Working on the Railroad. Alza Khalil, who did the Arabic Amazing Grace, and she's the mom of our intern. Reem. Reem, yeah. yes. 
And of course, our puppeteer from our apocalyptical show, Myron Gousseau, did our Russian version of You Are My Sunshine. Kieran Alwalia doing the Hindi version of Three Blind Mice. And finally, uh, on uh, with the piano and musical interpretation on everything, John Dryden. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Oh, and you know what? Uh, if you go to our website, radiolab.org, you can hear a proto version of uh, Radiolab in Spanish, which we'd like your feedback on. Yep. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krolwich. Valkator. Start of message. Hi, this is David Eagleman. Hello, this is Carl Zimmer. This is Kim Van Cleef. Radio Lab is produced by Jada Boomrad. Our staff includes Ellen Horn, Soren Wheeler. Soren Wheeler, who produced this show. Woo! Tim Howard, Brenna Farrell, Molly Webster, Melissa O'Donnell, Dylan Keefe, Jamie York, Andy Mills, Kelsey Padgett, and Matt Kelty. With help from Adrian Locke, Reem Abdu, and Claire Tinnisketter. Special thanks to Nancy Updike, Larry Kaplow, Emily Condon, John Lomberg, Nick Dusaforo, TJ Voigt, Alberto Ferraris, Wallace Almeida, Suzanne Franks, and everyone at Language Line. End of message. All right, so listen, we're, it's, the show's over, right? It's definitely totally over. over. We've said goodbye. Yeah, yeah. So like anyone so this listening is like right a, now, this is now we're not even here really. No, this is this is for this is for the people who want to venture into some well, hideous territory, really <laughs> awful territory. We, we because we have uh, we asked listeners to to send in so you tell, tell us what you think of us. Tell you yeah. know, like, do you like us? Yeah. And, and here's what we got. Ojalá tus huevos se conviertan en tumores y tu esperma en fuego para